Ninde del foyan elthi pros himas glosa eslalon. Timas otheloson ian mi iman lalisao. En i apocalypsos, i en gnose, i en profitea, i didaske. That means nothing to you, right? <laughs> this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and um, Paul uses the example of speaking in other languages and the struggles that we have understanding um, other languages uh, as, as we, and why we need to think about how we worship and what we do. Um, that, by the way, is uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 6, which says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Um, how are you going to understand what I'm saying if I'm talking in a language you don't understand? And so we want to turn to uh, the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 14 this morning. We've been talking about the mess in the, the Corinthian church. Um, and uh, we want to we look at what was going on in their worship services. So what I want to do, uh, I'm going to read this whole chapter. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to engage um, your, your, your dialectic. I want you to be listening to this. And I want, I want you to be thinking, as we hear this, this passage of Scripture, um, what was going on in the Corinthian church that Paul is addressing here? Uh, Ray Pouliot and I talked about how um, an interesting writing project uh, that he's always thought about is to kind of reconstruct the letters that Paul received that prompted him to write First and Second Corinthians. So you can kind of get a feel for what's going on. But I want you to, I want you as we as we listen to this and as we as we read it together, I want you to be thinking about what was going on in this church. What could have been going on? in this church that prompted Paul to write what he writes. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 1, Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in tongues builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with, our, with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language... I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, 
One who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church... I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants and evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, Tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among us. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in tongues, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets." But God is not a God of confusion, but of, faith, of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, so the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. We talked about that passage a few weeks ago. Was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So what's going on in the Corinthian church that Paul is addressing? What's going on? Man, I hate it when he asks us to tell us what's going to happen. It's too early in the morning. Okay, go ahead. Disorderly worship. All right, they should be building up the church. Anybody else? What does their worship service look like? Chaos. Why? Everybody's talking in different languages? Even the ones who are talking in the same language are doing what? They're talking over each other? 
They're, they're, I have a word from the Lord. I have a word from the Lord. I have a word from the Lord. Hala ha mala. Everybody's like, what? Bill's been drinking again. The, their church services are uh, chaos. Everybody's coming together. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's talking. There's people who are saying, I, I, God, God appeared to me and he told me this. And, and, and there are people saying, oh, uh, you know, this thing popped in my head and I, I wanna, the, the church needs to hear what popped in my head. And it's super important because it popped in my head. And there's chaos. Now keep in mind, these are not churches where everybody's sitting in a row in a nice orderly situation. These are these are being these churches are gathering in places like Greek academies um, and and open courtyards and occasionally cemeteries. Um, and and they're 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 just people coming together and they're often coming together very very early on Sunday morning, like before the dawn. It was it was very early a practice in the church um, because people didn't get Sundays off. Everybody had to work, um, and so the practice of the church was for the the believers to gather in the dark before dawn on Sunday and worship together until the dawn, the sun rose and then they would go off and do their work. And, and this, this church, this Corinthian church, it's, it's, it's just chaos. It's chaos. Now, how many of you would really, really enjoy like say four o'clock in the morning on Sunday, your household being full of people contradicting each other loudly? Wouldn't that just be great. That would just be fabulous. I mean, we all sit around, you know, you know what I can't wait to do? I can't wait to go to that family reunion so the three uncles that we never see can argue about politics the entire time, right? We all enjoy that. Last night, Nicole came into my office. She says, I don't know who's having a party in our neighborhood, but someone is very, very loud. I was like, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. I'm usually the loud one at the party, and that wasn't me. And this is what their worship services are like. Now, we could, we could spend a lot of time talking about the biblical doctrine of tongues. Um, tongues uh, or, or is, is um, basically, if you haven't heard about this in the book of Acts, whenever the gospel came to a new group of people, they were gifted this gift of tongues. They would speak in languages, and they would speak in known languages, not kind of some kind of wacky, loopy, um, uh, uh, supernatural language. They spoke in no- known languages, and people would hear the message of the gospel in their um, in the language of their heart, their native language. And and sometimes I wish that that existed, right? I mean, especially with my daughter being a part of whatever Gen Z or Gen AA or whatever they're, they're calling. I don't know whether they, they like ran out of letters. They made the mistake of calling my generation X. And I guess they assumed they only had to deal with two more generations for all of history. Anyway, um, but you know, my daughter, she speaks a very different language than me um, in a lot of ways. Um, and I try to keep up and it always comes off really weird. Like, like she says, she says things, you know, like, um, one of the ones she used in high school was totes. I'm like, totes, really? That's not even an abbreviation. It's as long as all, it's longer than all. Like it's four words, what, what are you doing? You're actually de-abbreviating words and making them longer. Um, and, and you know, my, so I thought it'd be really cool. I referred to her uh, roommates as dorm sibs. You know, like, like, like dorm sisters, kind of like, she's like, no. I was like, no, I'm sticking with it. <laughs> 
I'm going with, I'm going to make this work. It's going viral. She's like, please stop, dad, please, please stop. Um, she had, she had some amazing ones on the drive down to Virginia. I was, I was dying. I was laughing so hard. Um, but anyway, um, we, we, uh, you know, it would be nice if as I was talking or, or Ray or Doc or, or Donald or, or any, of the, any of the men in our church that teach, it would be awesome. Wouldn't it be awesome if no matter what they said, it got automatically translated in your head into language that you could understand? Wouldn't that be phenomenal? Like you wouldn't have to sit there. I mean, my wife and I have these conversations and I don't do it on purpose, but I have big words in my head. So sometimes I will say something and I'm like, do you need to Google that? She's like, no. Okay, I'm ready, right? Um, and I, I'm not making that up. She's done it a couple times. Um, I do the same thing with music. She's like, it's a B flat. I'm like, sure it is. I don't know. Play the note. I don't know what it is. Um, I don't read music. Um, so we, wouldn't it be great though? That would be phenomenal. But it, it'd also make us really lazy. Um, tongues was was a gift it was a temporary thing that when the gospel reached a new people so when it went to the jews at pentecost and went to the uh, believing jews the those who received the baptism of john and then when it went to the gentiles the gift of tongues was manifest as a testimony uh, of the truth of the of the message of the gospel and it was apparently still very active um, in the time of paul um, but it had gotten out of control because here's the thing Anything that is popular, no matter how good it is, will eventually be get grabbed by people that are using it for the popularity of it and not the actual substance. Um, we, we tell stories all the time. Those of us that are familiar with um, certain, um, I'm going to use a non-committal word, exuberant forms of worship, right? Um, and I've told you guys the stories about how we used to go to holiness churches and there were little old ladies would make laps around the building and play songs on the piano. Um, we would go to camp meetings in Georgia and for some reason the men who were all in three-piece suits in Georgia where the humidity was 187% and it was the temperature of the sun and we were in cinder block buildings with no air conditioning. They're wearing three-piece suits with matching ties and and pocket squares and they would stand up and throw their pocket squares in the air to like agree with the preacher and I'm like even when we're exuberant Baptists are weird who throws a napkin in the air to worship God but we, we've all been that and and you go to some of those things and there are moments when the Holy Spirit pours out on the church and it is real and it is genuine and it is amazing we talk about healing right people talk about healing and stuff we've seen God heal people in our church do extraordinary things when we're in conformity with his will and we pray and and we come together and we go wow that's amazing God God healed that and all healing comes from God's but but when we get to see it real but then there are people that are like throwing their jacket around healing people by hitting them with their jacket or or holy thunder and i mean youtube's full of videos making fun of, of these kind of situations we talked about the holy rollers and all when something good gets abused it becomes difficult to tell the difference between the real and the abused and and we have to be very cautious well that's what's going on in the corinthian church People are using tongues. People are saying the Holy Spirit is speaking to them. They're shouting each other down. There's no order. So I want to share with you just 
three insights into this passage about the things we do in the church and the priorities we should have. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about speaking in tongues or we're talking about running a nursery or we're talking about um, you know, any aspect of ministry. I'm not picking on nursery in particular. I'm just identifying two extremes, right? First thing I want you to see is in verse 12. Paul says, um, he says, with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Now in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13, Paul expands this idea of building up the church and says that to build the church up is to build the church into the proper representation, the body of Christ. Not just to make everybody feel good. All right? How many of you have ever encountered a feel-good preacher where all they ever say is, you're good enough, yay. All right? And you're like, oh, that's cool. I needed that positive uplift. And then the next week it's like, you're good enough, yay. And I'm like, well, what about sin? You're good enough, yay. We're not just building ourselves up. The, the building up of the church is the building of the church into the representation of Christ. Right? And when you're building a church, but you're building it on the needs of the people rather than building it on the representation of Christ, you've got to be careful because the body of Christ is going to start to look a lot like the people that are supposed to be representing Christ. Jesus is going to start looking a lot more like what the people want him to look like rather than what he really looks like, what the body really looks like. Um, and this is important in Paul's thinking because as we grow as the body of Christ, as we grow into being the body of Christ, the reason we're doing that is because other people are watching us. Other people are watching us. Look at verse 22. Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy is a sign not for believers, but for believers. If the whole church speaks together in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. Now what he means by prophesy, by the way, is to speak the word of God. He's not talking about people saying, I see in your future, you will walk and lean to the left and turn and see a billboard and it will say, buy new shoes. Right? Um, you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm, he's talking about prophesying. He's talking about um, there's two kinds of prophecy in the Bible. Um, there is foretelling, which is what we think of as prophecy, predicting the future. And there's foretelling, which is this is what God says. And we want you to know what God says. And this is the kind of prophecy Paul is talking about. He's talking about a church that rather than being so concerned about the hoopla of doing tongues and all that stuff is in conformity with the revealed word of God. So if we were to substitute and say in verse 24, if all speak the word of God together and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's going to be convicted by all, he's going to be called to account by all because of the word of God, not because of us. 
And if we look at what we do as a church and we say, first of all, the purpose of this is to build up the church to be the body of Christ so that, the, so that Christ can speak to those who are not of the church, who are outside, and they can see a unity of voice. What is one of the number one criticisms of Christianity in our world? There's so many denominations, so many opinions, so many beliefs. How do we know that you're the right one? How do we know you're correct? And that's a valid criticism. There should be a unity of Christ. Uh, Jesus himself said that the world should see what we are doing and give glory to our Father in heaven, in Matthew chapter 5. And unfortunately, it's very easy to just make it about ourselves. So the first thing that I, I want you to see is that the purpose is building up the church. The second is that it is, it is presenting, representing Christ and his word to an unbelieving world. And thirdly, um, he says that when we do that, in verse 30, verse, um, verse, uh, we can go verse 33 and verse 40. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. In verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. It needs to be, we need to be intentional about what we do as a church. The, the, you don't just build a house haphazardly. There's a house down the street from my house. Um, it's a log cabin. They've been working on it about three years. They keep putting things up and taking them down. They put up the outside paneling of half of the house like two years ago, but never stained it, so it all got wrecked by the nails and things they used to put it up. So this past weekend, guess what they had to do? They had to take all that down and put it back up. Now, I have a theory about what's going on, and it is that the owner of the house keeps walking over and telling the general contractor to change things. Um, this, by the way, happened with my friend Charlie one time. He was building a house, and he made changes so many times that it wound up that his front door hit the stairs. It wouldn't open all the way um, because they kept changing things in the floor plan rather than letting people who knew what they were doing do it. You don't build a house haphazardly. You don't, just, you don't just go, you know what, we don't need to make sure all the corners are 90 degrees. Now, I'm going to be honest, that appears to be what the contractors who built the parsonage did. Because uh, there is not a straight corner in that entire place. Everything is crooked. I hang things on the wall, and I thought it was me. I will hang something on the wall, and I will put a level on it, bubble level, step back, and go, that is completely, utterly level. Then I would call my wife into the room. She'll look at it and go, yes, the bubble is right in the middle. I'll call my daughter in. Yes, the bubble is right in the middle. Both the dogs come in. They look at it. They go, yes, the bubble is in the middle. I take the, the level off, and we all stand there and go, You can't build a house like that. There's a reason you use 90-degree angles. There's a reason that you have to plan. Um, there has to be intention to what we do as the church to build one another up into the body of Christ, and it needs to be orderly. The words that appear in verse 40, decently and in order, decently means it looks orderly from the outside, and in order means it is orderly on the inside. 
Now, often in Christian ministry, we're just trying to get the outside to look good, and the inside is falling apart. How many of you have ever been on set of like a TV show? You know the TV shows that look so awesome um, on the screen? You know, like, oh my goodness, that set. If you were to see what the set actually looks like, all the stuff that's on camera is real orderly. And outside of that, there's ropes and things and people and running and chaos. They're just creating the illusion of order. The verisimilitude of everything is together. Everything is pulled together. But in reality, behind the scenes, there is chaos. And so often, Christians are so obsessed with the thing on the outside, the external look, that they're willing to deal with chaos on the backside just to get that to work. It's okay, everything's fine. How many times, I, now, now those of you that know me know that I'm a planner. I don't like messing with the plan. If I make a plan, I want the plan to be fulfilled. I have this, this thing, Nicole had to deal with it with our wedding. I wrote readings and people didn't read them correctly and I'm in my wedding going, that's wrong, right? Like you're not supposed to be like that. It's one of the reasons I don't script my messages because if I do, I have to make sure I get every single word correct and that would be incredibly boring for you um be, but uh the this the i'm one of those people that i like to make a plan and stick to the plan that's how i operate um it's how i am um so my so my my issue is if if the plan is falling apart right everybody will go it's okay it'll work out in the end that does not give me peace because I don't like that superficially it might look okay but underneath it's chaos Um, as an example one of the rules we have at Bedford Road is if we don't have a leader we don't do the ministry and a lot of times people are like well you know we can just make it work for now and and you know, it, we, we just need to do this thing. We need to do this thing. Of course, the first question is, why do we need to do this thing? Why do we need to do this thing? And so many people are like, because that's what churches do. Is it really? Um, you know, all the crazy stuff that we do, is it really necessary? And one of the rules we have is no leader, no ministry. Why do we have that rule? Well, it's simple. It's simple. Everything should be done decently and in order. It should be done well on the outside, but it should also look good on the inside. It should be ordered. It should be organized. There should be a reason. There should be um, everything that we do should flow out of what God has called us to do and should use the resources that we have to accomplish that thing. And if we don't have the resource, we should be willing to say we can't do that thing. We just don't have the capacity to do it. Bedford Road is very, very good at some things. I don't know of any church anywhere on the planet Earth that has as much quality, as many quality musicians as Bedford Road does for the size of the church. I really don't. But there are other things we do not have the capacity for. 
We don't have the gifts for them. We don't have the leaders for that. And we could say, well, we just got to make it happen, and we just got to push people into those roles, and, and, and we got to make it happen. And the reality is, when we do that, it might look good on the outside. It might have a good external order. But what's the internal order? What's going on inside? Um, how are we functioning inside? If we are constantly scrambling to staff all the things that we quote-unquote need, then ministry and worship is going to be a frantic race to do the things that have to be done right now, what I call the necessity of, ur- of, uh, necessity of, the, of the urgent, and we are going to fail to be in harmony with the presence of God because we are so obsessed about the external that we've forgotten the internal. The musicians have all heard me say this. We'll be talking about worship service and I will say, but when are you going to breathe? When are you going to be able to pause? You're in a mad rush to get all of this stuff done, but where's the space for God? Where's the, where's the space for the Holy Spirit to work. If you're so obsessed, and there's nothing, I I believe very strongly in plans and practicing and all those things because they give us structure to be able to relax and breathe. And, And let God be at work rather than us trying to force his will. Um, I grew up in camp meetings. How many of you have ever done camp meeting? All right, yes. All right. Um, camp meeting started with this simple idea. There are a whole lot of people that don't know Jesus in the cities of the United States, and they can't get to church on Sunday because they're working. So we're going to set up a tent in some public space, and we're going to be there for a week, and we're going to preach the gospel, and we're going to see people come to know Jesus. It's a brilliant idea. Now, by the time I came along, and I'm, I'm, I hope it's not my fault, but By the time I came along, what camp meeting was, was uh, we're going to set up a tent. We're going to invite some fire-breathing preacher to come yell at people who are already at church for a week about not being good enough, holy enough, and guilt trip us into maybe getting saved a second or third or fourth or fifth time. And that was what I endured as a kid. You all think it's hard to go to church on Sunday morning. I went to church Sunday school, Sunday morning, often something on Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, and often we would finish our Sunday night service and drive to my dad's, fr- my dad's friend Pastor Joe's church and sit through his church service, just for fellowship's sake, or in my case, sleeping's sake. Um, oh, and then we had Wednesday night, Bible stu- Wednesday night prayer meeting. We had a midweek Bible study. I had youth group, which wasn't allowed to be on Wednesday night or Sunday night. It had to be its own thing. Um, and then we would do week-long camp meetings. If there was a week-long revival going on anywhere in our area, my dad was there, and we had to go with him. I often spent whole weeks of my summer in a suit and tie going to church. Being told over and over and over again by the preachers that I wasn't good enough, holy enough, blah, 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 blah. That thing, it had the semblance of holiness. 
But what was going on inside? Why was it so important? What are we supposed to do as the church? Let me tell you what Paul is saying in a nutshell. When you look around and there's so much to be done and you don't know what to do and and everybody's got to do something and you pitch in and you pitch in and we need these people to do this and guilt trip that you're not involved and, and try to squeeze the time. The whole church just needs to stop. Take a breath. Say, why are we here? And why are we doing what we're doing? And that's hard to do. To recenter on our purpose as a church and say, okay, why are we doing what we're doing? You know what, moms and dads, you get frantic with your kids. Grandparents, you get frantic with your kids and their kids. Kids, you get frantic with your parents. We get frantic with our employers. We're trying to figure out what, and we're trying to get everything to do. Sometimes you just need to stop. You need to stop You need to pause. You need to say, why are we doing what we're doing? Is it to build up the body of Christ so that the world can see the message of the gospel in all of our lives? So that that message is both internally and externally in order, decently and structured and working and everything is fitting together? Are we just doing it for the sake of doing it? That's a hard, hard place. Some of us are doers. I don't know if you've noticed this about me. I like to do things. I like to get them. Actually, I don't like to do things. I like to get things done. There is a difference between those two things. Um, I like to finish things. And if I don't think I can finish it, guess what I don't do? I don't start it. I, I like limitations. Sometimes I, I, I hear from, we should have this ministry, that ministry. And when I say, well, there's no leader. And people start listing people that could be leaders. Well, this person could do it. This person could do it. This person could do it. And as the pastor, I know what's going on in the lives of those people that everybody wants to throw in. And I know they're not going to have the time. They're not going to have the, the spirit to do it right. I would rather do one thing well then fail to reflect the excellence of Christ in a million things. I, I, I would rather that Bedford Road do Sunday well and our kids have to run around a little bit, have to um, maybe don't have all the programs they want. I would rather have five missionaries we know are working for God in the world than a hundred missionaries we can't keep track of. I would rather have the two elders that I have right now, that we have right now, we're looking to add a couple, but I'd rather have them because I know where their heart is and their resources are and their ability, than we say, we've got to have five elders. We've got to find five elders. Somebody find five elders. That always works, Ray, right? If you just, you just start scrambling, we've got to have five. We've got to have five. Find five. We should, we should remember why we're here. If there's a big idea this morning that comes out of 1 Corinthians, it is this. Paul says to the Corinthian church, stop. 
stop. Slow down. You're so obsessed with all the things you think are church and you're missing the, the unity of Christ. And the worst part about that is that believers are going without learning what it means to be believers and unbelievers are going without hearing the gospel because you're so frantic to be speaking in tongues or prophesying or shouting each other down or having your parties or celebrating this or that. He says to the Corinthians, just slow down. Now here's the greatest thing about this. It means that Paul believes that they are capable of doing church. They're capable of doing it. If God puts you in the position to be the church, to be parents, to be families, to be whatever, God has given you the capacity to do it decently and in order. You just got to stop and breathe. And one of the things American culture is not comfortable with is pausing and resetting and doing it decently and in order. But that's what it takes to be the church, to avoid distractions. And Paul is about to get into some heavy theology, and he needs them to be attentive to Christ more than anything else. Join me in a word of prayer. It is no mistake, Jesus, that the third member of the Trinity is the spirit, the breath, the wind. Help us to breathe, to find the integrity, the unity, the voice the harmony to be your body, to do the work of building up one another so we might reflect Christ and speaking the truth of your world into the world. You have blessed us beyond measure as the church. Help us to live as the church, to serve one another to let go of the things that crowd out your voice so that we can hear you, know you, and speak your word. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.